Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. If you ask most people to name a famous archaeologist, the answer might very well be Indiana Jones, the character played by Harrison Ford in the movies. With me in studio is a man sometimes called a real-life Indiana Jones. He's archaeologist Chris Begley, an associate professor of anthropology at Transylvania University in Kentucky. He's appearing this evening at the St. Louis Science Center's First Friday event titled First Friday Indiana Jones. Chris, welcome. Nice to have you here. Well, thank you very much. My first question is that the, the event tonight is themed after Indiana Jones, which is a fictional movie character. Why deal with that when you got the real thing? You. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, we, uh, we deal with uh, the, the ideas about archaeology all the time. And, and uh, Indiana Jones, of course, is <clears throat> perhaps the, the, you know, the first thing people think of when they think of archaeology. And it really has a, uh, has had a strong effect on on archaeology archaeologists and there's a uh, uh, sort of an enduring legacy of these movies that uh, that I think is interesting to talk about uh, is ar- archaeology treated treated fairly in these movies and and others um, well it may, may be fairly but uh, not very accurately and and there, you know, there are some issues. Uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about uh, um, what it gets right, what it gets wrong, uh, why that matters, and uh, some of the effects of those those ideas about archaeology. If they were making a movie about you, what are some of the exploits that you've experienced that might be included? Well, that seems unlikely, I think. But the the one of the things we associate with archaeology and sort of the excitement of archaeology is this travel to these you know places around the globe and all of that and that i think is part of uh part of what uh, people are excited about i've worked for a long time in central america and in honduras and part of uh, honduras called the, the mosquito coast and that's an area that's uh rainforested and it's relatively uninhabited and it's the kind of place where a lot of stories grow up about it uh, that would certainly be part of uh, that. More recently, I've done uh, almost exclusively underwater archaeology, and that, you know, that's very exciting for a whole other set of reasons. Wasn't the Mosquito Coast also a Harrison Ford movie? Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> what yeah, what is this connection between you and Harrison Ford? Well, I don't know. There's uh, it seems to be uh, uh, seems to be uh, there a lot. Um, yeah, that that movie uh, based on the book uh, by Paul Thoreau was. Uh, um, also, a really good movie, filmed by the way in Belize, because the, uh, uh, the filming in the actual Mosquito Coast was going to be logistically uh, uh, too difficult, and so that's um, yeah, those would probably be exactly uh, uh, what yeah. people would know those terms from. I, I want to spend some time talking about underwater archaeology, but sure. a little bit more about Central America. Sure. It's it's a dangerous place sometimes and oftentimes, and also moving around in the jungles there can be extraordinarily difficult, isn't it? Well, it can be. I mean, part of one one of the things to, to think about is, is why we talk about certain places in certain ways and what that does. Uh, the rainforest, uh, for instance, is actually a pretty easy place to uh, survive. You've got plenty of food. You have plenty of water. It's always warm. Uh, the the kinds of things that are dangerous, uh, poisonous snakes, for instance, are, you know, pretty much ubiquitous all over the the world. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's that's not particularly new. But there's a there's often a face of danger put on this in order to. 
uh, sort of amplify the exploits of whoever it is that's that's working there. That's, uh, that's what the movies do uh, once again. Yeah. Exactly. That's what that's what the movies do. Um, Central America, yeah, especially now. Um, for a number of reasons, have you know some real issues with uh, with violence and um, narco trafficking and some other things. That of course affects much more the people that live there than than people like mm-hmm. me that come through periodically to do some sort of uh, uh, scientific project. W- would you be given kind of a free pass if you went down there and th- th- there were troubled times because of what you do, or would you be in danger? Do you think? Um, I think I would just be relatively uninteresting to folks. There would be no reason to engage mm-hmm. me in any of this. A lot of the the violence, for instance, in Honduras is is between rival gangs, or it has to do with the uh, narcotics uh, transshipment uh, trade there. And if you're not part of that, and if you're not sort of a bystander caught in uh, caught in the crossfire, then then you're probably safe. What were you looking for down there? Well. Um, in the Mosquito Coast, there's been relatively little research done. And so we had a lot of very basic questions. When did people live here? Who were these people? How were they making a living? How do they relate to modern indigenous groups that live in and near the areas? And so really uh, the first step is to go talk to local folks, have them uh, uh, show me archaeological sites they know and and just sort of get a uh, uh, get a sense of the region. Mm. What kind of a team would you bring with her, with you on an expedition like that? Well, sometimes there'll be perhaps more than one archaeologist. Typically, there would be me. I would have a, a, a Honduran a counterpo- uh, counterpart, an archaeologist from the Institute of Anthropology, who would work with me, and then a whole team of local. Uh, people that lived in in the areas, and that's really the key to it. the 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 amount of of local knowledge and the the degree to which we rely on that is is just extraordinary. What, uh, Chris, would you think would have been your most important discovery in the years you've been doing this? Well, I think um, sort of establishing some baseline data for this part of the world that was relatively unknown. But as archaeologists, of course, and like all science. We work off of research questions or hypotheses. And so we often have a larger question that we are investigating in a particular circumstance. So my questions related to how um, political elites come to power and how they maintain mm-hmm. that power. And those are questions that would be of interest mm-hmm. to people uh, in all sorts of situations. And where I was looking in Honduras was uh, a particularly interesting place for this because it was a crossroads, many different groups coming together. But how would you determine through archaeological mm-hmm. studies uh, how people came to power? They're no longer there. Exactly. And yeah. Well, that's the that's the, uh, the art of it. I suppose uh-huh. the um, – in this case, we looked for sort of the physical manifestations of power. If you're a powerful person or a powerful group of people, what might you leave behind? Would it be public buildings? Would it be um, a legacy of influence in, in far-flung areas? Would it be a uh, uh, some sort of domination of, of your neighboring group? And so we looked for the manifestations of that and then – uh, you interpret those in a climate such as uh, Central America and and Latin America. Uh, how well preserved are the things that we're talking about? 
Well, it can be pretty poor. Mm-hmm. In the tropics, uh, not only do you have uh, uh, heat and humidity, you also have often acidic soils. And so uh, the degree of preservation for certain kinds of artifacts are going to be very poor. But for pottery, for stone artifacts, and for architecture made out of you know stone and clay, um, that's going to be there. And in fact, the, a lot of it is protected by the forest cover. It's protected from from the kind of damaging rain uh, uh, that you would get if it's cleared off. So sometimes you have remarkable preservation of certain mm. things. Not wood, I would assume. Uh, uh, not no. wood, not bone. Uh, that, that's triple canopy jungle down there, isn't it? Pretty much. Yeah, there's uh, – you know, a, a lot of it will be a mature rainforest, probably anywhere from 150 years old without any uh, – uh, large-scale human uh, intervention to much older than that. Um, a lot of the area is also pine forested. Uh, when we mm. think about the Mosquito Coast and from the movie, you think about the rainforest, and that is a big part of it. But there's also these swampy savannas. There's pine forests. And this changed over time. One of the challenges for us is to imagine the landscape when it was full of people living in villages and farming. Let's let's go to underwater archaeology. It's kind of new to me and I would, you know, be thinking of uh, the uh, Titanic and that sort sure. of thing. But you go beyond that. It's something quite different for you, isn't it? Underwater archaeology has only about a 55-year history. Mm-hmm. Um and that, of course, has to do with the development of scuba diving technology in the 1940s and, and, and such. For an underwater archaeologist, uh, the range of things that you might look at could include shipwrecks, shipwrecks, but it could also include environments that were formerly dry land that are now inundated, um, could include industrial uh infrastructure that was part of the development of one group or another, locks and dams or shipbuilding uh, facilities. And um, so, yeah, there's a huge range of things. Have, have you done any work on the Mississippi? No, not on the Mississippi. <laughs> I've, I have done some in uh, in the Ohio River, uh, tried to do some in the Ohio River. Um, there are, you know, lots of challenges with an active mm. Uh, river that's you know, be, being dredged sure. and sure. and uh, and still being maintained for commerce, uh, but uh, you know the the Ohio and the Mississippi, of course, uh, in, incredibly important in the in the history of this country and the expansion of Europeans from you know the eastern seaboard uh, westward uh, has uh, of course important in uh, um, throughout the history of humanity here and really the, the there's a lot. Right here in your your in your own backyard, that is uh, just uh, in, incredibly interesting and important. Such as, well, for instance, uh, and maybe going um, a little bit away from underwater archaeology, I've worked uh, quite a bit with a group uh, focusing on cave archaeology in this mm-hmm. area, uh, the Cave uh, Archaeology Investigation Research Network, or CAIRN, who will also be. Uh, appearing tonight at the, mm-hmm. at the Science Center. And um, everything from uh, caves that were used uh, for industrial reasons, you know, under uh, uh, under the city here to um, some caves on the far side of the state that have preserved uh, 
foot impressions from humans and animals, you know, dating back uh, centuries. That's got to be very exciting to uh, to find things that are perfectly preserved in in the state that they're in. It yeah, it it, it really is, and it uh, um, you know that's the. Part of what we work on uh, a lot is how do you document these things? How do you present it to the public? One of the one of the things that is absolutely uh, essential for archaeology is that we maintain public interest and in that we're able to bring uh, this stuff and and uh, to everybody. And so that's one of the uh, exciting things about events like tonight. Who who funds these expeditions of yours and and others? Uh, well, there's a whole litany of, of folks that might fund it. I'll sometimes get funding uh, from my university, um, large national uh, organizations, National Science Foundation, uh, Fulbright Foundation, perhaps, um, smaller groups that might focus on a particular region or a county or a city. Um, and then some of it is, uh, you know, funded out of pocket, which is, mm-hmm. you know, un- un- the unfortunate reality of uh, of a lot of sciences, I yeah. think. I asked that question because I I'd read someplace that funding was sort of drying up for work like yours. Well, it, it might be drying up and it's never been uh, um, uh, overly abundant. You know, it, that's always, uh, of course, uh, a large part of your activity is – is uh, finding the next source of funding, and 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 uh, that's that's tough in so yeah, many there so, you go. In so many fields. Needless to say, back to the underwater archaeology for just a moment. Sure. Um, I was sort of curious as to whether you've been tempted to try to find Atlantis. <laughs> no, although the um, you know one of the things that that we encounter a lot of our, as archaeologists are you know myths legends uh, oral histories that that um we need to decide how we can use those you know where where's the nugget of truth how do you engage with with these sorts of things and um that hasn't been a, a particular interest uh, for me but you know often discussing legends like this the interesting thing is what it means to the people that are perpetuating it, what it meant to the people that began it, you know, mm-hmm. much more interesting than, uh, you know, the actual treasure hunt to find uh, someplace. It certainly has intrigued a lot of people for a, a lot of time, <laughs> a lot of centuries. Yeah, and of course, that's the interesting part. What is it about these things that yeah. engages people? Why are the lost cities so exciting? Why is the, uh, uh, you know, the lost continent or whatever it is? And, you know, perhaps it has to do with, uh, you know, you you want to believe that there are still some frontiers out there, right, something still undiscovered. And, um, you know, I can assure anybody listening that that might think, uh, well, I was born too late to participate in this, mm-hmm. in this great uh, era of discovery, that, in fact, this is the great era of discovery and there's so much to do right now and, and – uh, and so much to do in the future. And you've got uh, new technology to to help you in this work. From what I understand, it's uh, significant. Mm, it, it's it's wonderful. Everything from uh, um, lidar technology, which allows you to see through the forest canopy to see what's underneath it, to other sorts of three D technologies, to um, ground penetrating radars and uh, different sorts of sonars that 
really allow us to find archaeological sites, document them, uh, and understand them a lot better than we ever have. Have you done any work over at Cahokia Mountains? No, I've not. But, you know, of course, uh, this was the center of one of the great uh, uh, pre-Columbian civilizations. And, and of course, uh, the large city there at Cahokia. No, I've not. I've worked uh, on similar groups uh, further east in in Kentucky. Mm. Well, tell me a little bit about what's happening tonight. Uh, It's a four-hour event from what I understand. That's a long time to be on stage. Are you going to be uh, on stage for four hours telling stories? No, goodness, no. That would – no one deserves that. It would be um, uh, a whole series of events. really for the entire family from games, scavenger hunts. There will be a presentation by the cave archaeology group that mm-hmm. I mentioned, Karen. Uh, I will be speaking at 8 o'clock uh, about the Indiana Jones image in archaeology, what archaeologists actually think about Indiana Jones. Um, and uh, this will culminate with the uh, – a screening of Raiders of the Lost Ark at 10 o'clock. Have you ever met Harrison Ford? No, I've not. No. <laughs> what do you want to? I mean, you're, you're so closely connected, it would seem. We are connected, yeah. yeah. Well, Chris Bagley, I want to thank you so much for being with us and telling us a little bit about yourself and about the event this evening. I'm sure it'll go well. Most interesting subject, indeed. Well, you're welcome. That thank first, you. That first Friday Indiana Jones event at the Science Center takes place at 6 o'clock this evening, runs until 10. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.